0: Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits.
1: Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumbacasino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. DGW prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
0: 18+. John Dillinger had charm. He was good looking. In the minds of the American public at the time, he didn't fit the image of a ruthless criminal. An article in the Chicago Daily News described him this way. He had none of the look of a conventional killer, none of the advertised earmarks of the crook. His diction was amazing, his poise no less so. There was no hint of hardness about him. He had none of the sneer, the blatant toughness of the criminal. He rates in the eyes of calloused observers as the most amazing specimen of his kind ever seen outside of a wildly imaginative motion picture. As 1933 came to an end, John Dillinger finished the last full year of his life. In his final months on earth, he became more ruthless and more famous, much more famous. In 1934, he completed his transformation from petty thief to accomplished bank robber to Infamous Criminal. The events that truly turned him into a legend were just three months away. From Black Barrel Media, this is Season 4 of Infamous America. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer, and this season we're telling the story of the most notorious bank robber in modern American history, John Dillinger. This is Chapter 6, Crown Point. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially in the spring when the pollen from desert plants here in Arizona is off the charts. I get all the classic symptoms. Coughing, sneezing, runny nose, itchy eyes, and a pressure buildup in my head. The works. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. The double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available Relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear.
1: website for details
0: When John Dillinger and his girlfriend Billy Forschette returned home to Chicago from a Thanksgiving vacation to Arkansas, they found law enforcement bearing down on them. Chicago police had attempted to capture John Hamilton, who was a friend of Dillinger's from the prison shirt factory. Hamilton had escaped with Harry Pierpont's group during the breakout. During the attempted arrest of Hamilton, a Chicago police officer was killed. People in Chicago who wavered between supporting Dillinger and despising him now firmly despised him. Dillinger and Billy vacated two of their apartments just days before they were raided by the cops. When another member of the shirt shop crew was captured by police, the couple left Chicago altogether, at least for the time being. They rented a three-story mansion in Daytona Beach, Florida. It had 17 rooms and cost a whopping $100 per month. Over the next couple weeks, Dillinger's friends and their girlfriends drifted down to Florida. At one point, four of the country's most wanted couples were staying under one roof. At Christmas, Harry Pierpont gave his girlfriend, Mary Kinder, a diamond watch. Dillinger gave Billy, a Boston Bull Terrier puppy, and some sexy silk underwear. When his friends teased him that the lingerie was more of a gift for him than her, Dillinger apologized to Billy by giving her $1,000 in cash. Shortly before they rang in the new year of 1934, the whole company shared drinks and watched a fireworks display over the ocean. Dillinger wasn't much of a drinker later in life, and the alcohol made him pretty tipsy. He fired a full drum of ammunition from his Tommy gun into the water. The next morning, he worried that his celebration would bring unwanted attention. It was time to leave the Daytona mansion. Billy and her puppy jumped in Dillinger's new terraplane and drove to Wisconsin to visit her mother. Dillinger headed toward Chicago with John Hamilton. Dillinger had gone two months without robbing a bank, but that was about to change. On January 15, 1934, Dillinger, Hamilton, and a third man targeted the First National Bank of East Chicago in Indiana. The wheelman waited outside in a new Ford V8 Tudor sedan while Dillinger and Hamilton strolled in and announced their intention to rob the place. Hamilton had a couple nicknames. Most of his friends called him Red. Others called him Three-Finger Jack because he lost two fingers on his right hand in a childhood sledding accident. But the disability did not slow Red Hamilton down at all. While Dillinger guarded the employees and the customers with a tommy gun, Hamilton emptied the teller's drawers. Once again, the silent alarm registered in police headquarters, and the officers thought it was a malfunction. The officers grumbled about the constant false alarms but finally decided they'd better walk down to the bank to check it out. For one of the officers, the response to the alarm would prove fatal. Detective Sergeant William Patrick O'Malley, known to his friends and family as Pat, was in his mid forties. He was married with three daughters. He'd been in the East Chicago Police Department for two years. When the alarm came in from the First National Bank, O'Malley buttoned his coat for the cold weather and grabbed three patrolmen to join him in the walk to the bank. They didn't expect to see much when they approached the bank. And in fact, everything looked calm. Unlike other banks Dillinger had robbed, there were no men with guns guarding the door. There was no alarm bell blaring across town. There was no crowd on the sidewalk. The four police officers felt no sense of apprehension as they headed through the front doors. They walked in single file, with Officer Hobart Wilgis in front. The uniformed patrolman walked through the second set of doors and came face to face with John Dillinger's Tommy gun. The young officer froze. Sergeant O'Malley glanced around Wilgis to see why he'd stopped. When O'Malley saw Dillinger, he shut the doors and pushed the other two officers back outside. Officer Wilgis was the lone lawman in the bank with the gangsters. O'Malley pulled his 38 revolver and positioned himself between the bank and the shop next door. One of his patrolmen headed to a Walgreens to call for backup. The fourth officer kept watch on the bank's side door. Then two police captains arrived in a squad car with two more patrolmen. They surrounded the bank. For some reason, none of them focused on the getaway car, which was parked right across the street from the bank, facing the wrong way. Inside the bank, Dillinger took the bullets out of the revolver he'd confiscated from Officer Wilgus. As he did, the young officer stared at his tommy gun. Dillinger calmly said, Oh, don't be afraid of this. I'm not even sure it'll shoot. Dillinger wasn't worried about the police. He told Hamilton to take his time and get all the money. When they were ready to go, Dillinger ordered the vice president of the bank to join Officer Wilgis in front of the robbers as human shields. When Dillinger and Hamilton exited the bank, neither of them saw Sergeant O'Malley flattened against the face of the building. He was 10 feet to Dillinger's left and had his 38 aimed directly at the robber. O'Malley shouted at Wilgus. Wilgus jumped out of the way and gave O'Malley a clean shot. O'Malley didn't hesitate. He fired four shots in two bursts of two. The bullets slammed into Dillinger's chest. He staggered backward. He was stunned, but not dead. He and Hamilton were wearing bulletproof vests that had been stolen from police stations by Dillinger and Pierpont. Dillinger steadied himself and swung his Tommy gun toward Sergeant O'Malley. He said, You asked for it, and squeezed the trigger. Fire erupted from the barrel of the machine gun, and O'Malley collapsed on the sidewalk. The sergeant's widow said for the rest of her life that her husband had been hit by 18 bullets. Other reports said the number was 8. Either way, Sergeant William Patrick O'Malley died almost instantly. John Dillinger was now a cop killer, and the robbery wasn't over yet. During the shootout between O'Malley and Dillinger, Officer Wilgis started to run. Red Hamilton stepped out from behind the other hostage to chase him. Gunfire lit up Hamilton. Hamilton made it only a few steps before he fell to one knee. Seven bullets hit parts of his body left unprotected by his steel vest. Dillinger fired short bursts from his Tommy gun at the police. He fired with his right hand and grabbed Hamilton with his left. He dragged his injured partner and the satchel of money across the street to the getaway car. Dillinger shoved Hamilton into the front seat and then dove into the back. The getaway driver hit the gas and the Ford V8 sped away. The police tried to follow, but they couldn't keep up. The gangsters had escaped, but they were still in a world of trouble. The robbery began at 3.45 p.m. In the aftermath, Dillinger frantically searched Chicago for a doctor who would work on criminals. It was almost midnight before he found one. Dr. Joseph Moran was a doctor on the way down. He was an alcoholic who'd served two prison sentences because of botched illegal abortions. He'd become sort of a go-to doctor for criminals, including Ma Barker and her infamous gang. Gunshot wounds were his specialty, and Red Hamilton had seven of them. Dr. Moran removed all seven slugs from Hamilton and dressed his wounds. Red had been hit six times in the shoulders and left arm and once just above his pelvic bone. The doctor gave Dillinger a bill of $5,000 for the procedure. That would be the equivalent of $100,000 today. The wife of one of Babyface Nelson's friends agreed to put up the wounded man in her apartment. Hamilton spent the next five days resting and healing. The woman charged him $100 a day. While Red Hamilton recovered, Dillinger went to St. Louis to meet Billy, He celebrated their reunion by buying her another car, this one for the princely sum of $1,200. While making their purchase, Billy's puppy slipped out of its collar and made a break for it. Dillinger chased the dog and was joined by a second man in the pursuit. The man didn't recognize the most wanted criminal in the Midwest, which was astonishing because the man was a St. Louis police officer. After buying the new car, Dillinger and Billy planned to lay low. They were gonna head south again, but this time to the southwest instead of the southeast. They drove to a sleepy cowboy town in the desert called Tucson, Arizona. The plan was similar to the trip to Daytona. The other gang members would drift down during the cold winter months and they'd all take it easy. But the take it easy part didn't happen. In a matter of days, the Tucson police did something that forces in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Wisconsin hadn't been able to do in eight months. Tucson, Arizona was an Old West town. The population was about 30,000 at the time, and people quickly noticed the big city gangsters who rolled into town in shiny new cars. There were four couples in the group that arrived in the second half of January, 1934. John and Billy, Harry Pierpont and Mary Kinder, and the girlfriends and two other men from the Green Castle robbery, where the gang had tied their hostages to a tree during the escape. The group went south to avoid the heat of law enforcement in Chicago, but it completely underestimated the law in old Tucson. The gang rented a couple houses in town and within days, the local police were on top of them. Dillinger, Billy, and the puppy returned to the rental house one day and found the police waiting for them. Dillinger and Billy were arrested, and the puppy was a spectacle for the police. Someone had convinced Dillinger that the animal needed to wear little puppy goggles to protect its eyes from blowing sand. The sight was so bizarre that the cops actually thought the dog was wearing some kind of gas mask. For whatever reason. The rest of the gang and their girls were also arrested without a single shot fired. The cops confiscated $35,000 in cash and jewelry, and they found guns and ammo, including silencers, that were worth thousands more. Dillinger alone had nearly $7,000 in his pocket. Reporters and photographers hurried to the desert southwest. Movie companies sent cameramen to Tucson to capture the images on film. Newsreels of the event would soon be featured before movies across the country. At the arraignment, all the prisoners wore shackles. 30 armed deputies stood against the walls of the courtroom. The seats, as well as the courthouse hallways and the front lawn, were packed with spectators. When the judge ordered Dillinger to stand up from his chair, he mumbled, I ain't Dillinger, before he was pulled to his feet. Bail was set at $100,000 for each member of the gang. That would be nearly $2 million per person in today's money. They'd been good bank robbers, but they weren't that good. Nobody had that kind of cash. As Dillinger was led out of the courtroom, he leaned over and gave Billy a kiss. Flashbulbs lit up the court as photographers captured the poignant moment. After the arrest and the arraignment, the local Hudson auto dealer got very lucky. Somehow he got his hands on Billy's new Hudson and he displayed it on his lot under a proud banner that read, Dillinger chooses the 1934 Hudson for his personal use. Indiana State Police Captain Matt Leach happily gloated to the press as he stepped on a train for Tucson. He said, This stamps out the so-called Dillinger gang. The curtain closes down on them. Reporters and then the public were allowed to file past the jail cells of America's Most Wanted. 400 men and women went through on Saturday. On Sunday morning, 1,100 people waited outside for their turn. Captain Leach arrived on Sunday as well. Leach actually shook hands with Dillinger, the man he'd chased for half a year. Then Leach asked if Dillinger was ready to head back to Indiana. Dillinger said, I'm in no hurry. I haven't a thing to do when I get there.
1: That's
0: ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BGW group void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Law enforcement officers in numerous states were eager to get their hands on John Dillinger and his gang. The gang's defense attorney tried to get them sent to Wisconsin on robbery charges. Wisconsin had no death penalty and no pending murder charges for anyone in the gang. The governor of Arizona did not take the gang's preferences into account. Harry Pierpont, Mary Kinder, and the other two gang members were sent to Ohio. They would face murder charges for the killing of Sheriff Jess Sarber when they broke Dillinger out of jail. Mary was later released without charge. Billy Freshette was allowed to collect her puppy and go free, along with the other remaining girlfriends. They took a bus back to Chicago. John Dillinger was ordered back to Indiana he would stand trial for the murder of Sergeant Pat O'Malley. If convicted, he could end up in the electric chair. East Chicago patrolman Hobart Wilgis and his wife had been in hiding for their own protection since the day of the robbery. Wilges was brought to Tucson so he could positively identify Dillinger as the killer, which he did. Dillinger was dragged screaming from his cell. Two airplanes awaited him. One was for the gangster and law enforcement. The other was also full of law enforcement officials, but it was flown by a World War I pilot and it was there to prevent a skyjacking. Dillinger was handcuffed to a police officer for the flight. According to Hobart Wilgus's widow, that man was Wilgus himself. Whether true or not, no photos exist of the two together because Wilgus refused to be photographed with the killer. At this point in time, Commercial planes could only reach speeds of about 100 miles per hour, which was not much more than Dillinger's chosen getaway car, the Terraplane. Transporting the famous criminal from Arizona to Chicago involved four stops in Texas alone. A flight attendant on the Dallas to Little Rock to Memphis leg described Dillinger as looking like a little puppy with his tail between his legs. She felt sorry for him. The plane landed at Midway Airport a little after 6 p.m. on January 30th, 1934. 150 police officers, 13 cars, and a dozen motorcycles escorted Dillinger to the Lake County Jail in Crown Point, Indiana. The journey was about 35 miles and took roughly an hour and a half. When Dillinger arrived, 30 reporters hollered questions at him. When one of them asked if he had been instrumental in smuggling guns into the Indiana State Penitentiary for the big prison break, he said yes. Why not, he said. I stick to my friends and they stick to me. Another reporter asked how long it took to rob a bank. Dillinger smiled and said, One minute, 40 seconds, flat. During the long trip from Arizona to Chicago, Dillinger apparently charmed the man who would try to convict him, Lake County Prosecutor Robert Estill. During Dillinger's infamous media session, photographers encouraged Estill to put his arm around Dillinger's shoulders, and he did. Then Dillinger leaned on Estill's shoulder and smiled. Photos of the event are probably the most famous that exist of John Dillinger. The images were published on the front pages of newspapers all over the country and they were the worst mistake of estelle's life he was widely condemned for posing for the photos and they killed his possible political career for 30 minutes dillinger played the crowd to his advantage he said i'm not a bad fellow ladies and gentlemen i was just an unfortunate boy who started wrong his easygoing demeanor resonated with reporters dillinger had star quality and the reporters talked about him in that way. He was friendly and ordinary, someone the American people could root for. The New York Times called his return to Indiana a modern version of the return of the prodigal son. But Dillinger didn't plan to stay long. The High Sheriff of Lake County was Lillian Holly. She had only been on the job for a few months. Her husband had been elected sheriff, but he had been murdered and she took over. Fairly or unfairly, she took much of the blame for what happened on March 3rd, 1934, a little over a month after John Dillinger arrived in Crown Point. She was in charge, but she received some extra nasty criticism because she was a woman. On the morning of March 3rd, 60-year-old Sam Cahoon began his daily routine. He'd been the handyman at the Lake County Jail for six years, but on this day, his routine changed. Ordinarily, the prisoners were let out of their cells and they stepped into a walkway. Then they filed into the day room for breakfast. When they were inside, the door was locked behind them. Then Sam would open the main cell block and begin his rounds. But for some reason, on this day, Sam opened the door to the main cell block while the prisoners were still in the walkway. He'd never done that before. Dillinger pushed past two prison trustees who were low-level prisoners who assisted in the operation of the prison. He appeared in front of Sam at the open door. He shoved a pistol under the handyman's chin. Dillinger said he didn't want to kill anyone, but if Sam wanted to live, he should get in the cell block and be quick about it. Dillinger shoved the gun into Sam's stomach. A nearby prison guard was frozen in shock, but he noticed that Dillinger had trouble keeping a grip on the pistol. At one point, Dillinger had to grab it with both hands. Then another inmate, Herbert Youngblood, directed the unarmed guard and the two trustees into a cell. He used a toilet plunger handle as a weapon. Sam started to follow the guard and the trustees into the cell, but Dillinger pulled him back. He had other plans for the handyman. He kept Sam in front of him and the gun pressed against Sam's back as he pushed his way through the cell block. Dillinger and Sam soon ran into a fingerprint technician named Ernest Blunk. Dillinger decided to swap hostages. He pushed Sam into a cell and moved forward with Blunk. Dillinger asked how many guards were up front, but Blunk claimed to have no idea. Dillinger asked about weapons and car keys, and Blunk said they were most likely in the warden's office. So Dillinger sent Blunk ahead to find Warden Lou Baker. When Blunk returned with Baker, Dillinger took the warden to the cell block and shoved him in a cell. Dillinger and his partner, Herbert Youngblood, took Blunk to the warden's office, and there, On a windowsill, as if waiting just for them, were two fully loaded Tommy guns. Dillinger took one and handed the other to Youngblood. Dillinger returned to the cell block and announced, We've got to be going. Any of you want to come along? Two of Dillinger's cellmates jumped at the opportunity. Another prisoner asked to join as well. Dillinger ordered Ernest Blunk to release them from their cells. Then he asked the warden where the cars were kept. The warden told him they were in the back of the garage, with the keys inside. Dillinger and Youngblood pushed their four prisoners, Blunk and the three convicts, through the jail. Dillinger and Youngblood put on raincoats and hats they found in the kitchen. Then they moved the group outside to a courtyard. They crossed the courtyard and made it to the garage. When they entered, they found two trustees working on the sheriff's car. Dillinger ordered them to get in and drive. But they told Dillinger that none of the cars in the garage had keys. Dillinger fumed. He left Youngblood and the three prisoners who had volunteered to be hostages in the garage. He grabbed Blunk and then stomped back across the courtyard. They encountered several more men on the trip, and Dillinger disarmed them and locked them in a room, but he still couldn't find the keys to the sheriff's car. While Dillinger grew more angry and more frustrated, Warden Baker and Sam Cahoon made it out of their cells, but they were still trapped in the cell block. Luckily for them, the warden's residence was right on the other side of the cell block wall. The warden pounded on the wall and the sound resonated in his closet. His wife heard the noise and went to the closet to investigate. The warden instructed her to call for help. But instead of using the phone, she ran straight to the garage shouting, Dillinger's out, Dillinger's out. And she came face to face with the man himself, who had just returned from the main building. The warden's mother-in-law had also stumbled upon the gangsters a few moments earlier and promptly fainted. Mrs. Baker and her mother were shoved into a closet. At that point, the three prisoners who had volunteered to escape with Dillinger and Youngblood had second thoughts. The plan was falling apart, and they started to have visions of being cut down by authorities in a hail of gunfire. They went back to the cell block, but Dillinger and Youngblood were in it until the end. They pushed Ernest Blunk out the side door of the garage. They hurried past the criminal court's building and into the Main Street garage. Dillinger spotted a mechanic and asked which car was the fastest. The mechanic saw Dillinger in a raincoat and a hat and holding a Tommy gun and assumed he was a deputy. The man pointed at a black Ford V8 sedan. Dillinger told the mechanic to get in the back seat with young blood. Dillinger slid into the passenger seat in the front. Ernest Blunk climbed in behind the wheel. Dillinger instructed Blunk to drive 40 miles per hour and to be careful. They didn't want to get pulled over for speeding. Ernest Blunk drove John Dillinger and Herbert Youngblood away from the Crown Point Jail after the most daring escape of Dillinger's life. Blunk drove the four men from Indiana to Illinois. After the stress of the escape, Dillinger felt the thrill of freedom. He sang the old western tune, The Last Roundup, with its familiar refrain, Get along, little doggie, get along. When Dillinger decided it was safe, he told Blunk to stop the car. He ordered Blunk and the mechanic to get out, and gave the mechanic four dollars to help get them to the nearest town. Then he and Youngblood drove away. Sheriff Lillian Holly was described as nearly hysterical after Dillinger's escape, and the event would soon earn legendary status. The icing on the top was that the getaway car was her car. Dillinger and Youngblood had unknowingly stolen one of the sheriff's vehicles. But the part of the jailbreak that turned it into a legend was the beginning, not the end. The most hotly debated part of Dillinger's career is the few minutes between grabbing the handyman, Sam Cahoon, and getting to the warden's office to secure a Tommy gun. The gun Dillinger used in the beginning of the escape was supposedly made of wood. Dillinger told his friends later that he'd used a razor blade to carve it out of washboard and painted it black with shoe polish. The barrel of the small fake pistol was the handle of a safety razor. But there's been some disagreement about the wooden gun over the years. Some historians say Dillinger's attorney smuggled a more realistic wooden gun into the jail. It was apparently carved by a mysterious German woodworker. A year after the incident, the Bureau of Investigation interviewed witnesses. They all said that the object Dillinger used appeared to be wood. At one point, he dragged it across the bars of the cell in front of the warden, and it sounded like wood. And he might have bragged about it in the moment. But Sam, the handyman, insisted that Dillinger had a real gun. He said he was sure of it. By the end of the day on March 3rd, 1934, the beginning of the escape was the least of the concerns for law enforcement. Dillinger was back on the loose. Three days later, on March 7th, J. Edgar Hoover issued the first federal warrant for John Herbert Dillinger. Next time on Infamous America, Dillinger reunites with Billy Frechette and some of his old friends to continue his crime spree. And he investigates plastic surgery to change his face. J. Edgar Hoover promises the world to a young special agent named Melvin Purvis if Purvis will do one thing in return, catch John Dillinger. The chess match between Dillinger and Purvis begins next week on Infamous America. Primary research for this season was provided by Derry Matera, author of the best-selling book, Dillinger, The Life and Death of America's First Celebrity Criminal. This season was written by Sean Puglisi and myself. Music editing and sound design by Mike Hisong at Sneaky Big Studios. Artwork by Matt Lockery of My Colorful Past. I'm your host and producer, Chris Wimmer. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Please visit our website, blackbarrelmedia.com for more details and join us on social media. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram and B Barrel Media on Twitter. And if you want to contribute to the production of our shows, please visit our Patreon page. You can also find discounts on our merchandise. That's patreon.com. Slash Black Barrel Media. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
1: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price, and help you save when you bundle home and auto.